Hey there and welcome back to Health, Wealth and Happiness. I'm James. I'm Joe. And today's guest is a special one, someone I've been following closely for years, uh, from missing out on the Olympic selection in 2012 with two hit replacements to going on to achieving bronze at the Commonwealth Games in 2014, and then being selected for the World Champs and Olympics in 2015-2016, the Scottish record holder Mark Dry in the hammer joins us today. Mark, how's it going, my man? I'm all right, gents, how are you? Um, life is very bizarre at the minute, but yeah, still kicking. <laughs> And we're going to cover into that. We're going to dive into that. But let, let's start this all off first and foremost. How did you get into the hammer? How did the dream come about? Very bizarre, boring background. Uh, I wasn't a jock kid, you know what I mean? I was a little fat kid at school and I wasn't the superstar football player or standout athlete or, or anything like that. Uh, I lived by the beach. I used to throw stones all the time, sticks and stones in the woods and on the beach. And <clears throat> I didn't realise... I could throw sticks and stones a lot more <laughs> until uh, I think there was some school competition like a cricket ball throw and I remember I do remember that I remember doubling the distance of the second best person in the school and never thought anything of it and I was never pushed not pushed but I was never suggested to uh, take up a flex by any teachers at schools and stuff which obviously down the line I'm like I wish somebody would have pushed me here there or somewhere you know kind of what you call it, scouted talent and, and suggested whether it be, oh, you could be the next Steve Backley or you should go play baseball and try and get a scholarship in the US, whatever it might be. But basically, yeah, my dad um, was an ex-flight engineer in the Air Force. Uh, I'd had a very military upbringing. I was destined to join the Royal Air Force. Uh, so he put me into the Air Cadets. I was a very shy, underconfident, just nobody. And... Through the cadets, they fought, not forced me, but there was a mandatory athletics competition uh, and I didn't want to run because why would you? Uh, I didn't want to jump. Um, and I was like, well, throwing, throwing seemed the easiest thing to do. And at the lowest level, you generally find, you know what I mean, the bigger lads have a crack at throwing and that's how it is at the, at the earliest starting point. Um, I discovered it was pretty hard to get to the top, but um, that's how it started. Um, and I got hooked on... I don't know, winning basically, I'd done nothing and it just gave me desire and passion. Then I heard the Olympics were coming uh, to home in 2012. I, I wasn't like a lifelong follower of athletics. I didn't know what the Olympics was when I was a kid. We weren't like a family that were like glued to the TV. Um, and that was just it. I just, I'd seen the rings and I just had a dream of, of getting this tattoo and, and making an Olympic team. I didn't even plan, and I wanted to win the Olympics, but it was more making the team and becoming an Olympian was my lifelong dream. So, uh, I obviously got there eventually, which was good, but that's how I started. Nothing too flamboyant. I just didn't, basically. We'll address the element in the room, obviously, from those who may have seen online, but we'll, we'll cover this now. A bit of a complicated issue. Uh, but from what I understand so far, you were charged with something widely seen as quite serious. And you had a hearing, which was, you know, dismissed completely. But then only 21 days later, UK anti-doping appealed that and you were landed a four-year ban. Tell us about that. What's that like? What's it been like for you? Just carnage. Uh, obviously, it's ruined my life. It's ruined my career. I come back from uh, surgery, and it's uh, it's just been a nightmare um, dealing with it, trying to explain it, and and the and the worst thing about it has been having to keep quiet and oh, you shouldn't say this and you shouldn't say that, and and you don't want to get into a, a public battle and and just having people question. Um, everything that you've ever done, you know what I mean? And, and, and misinformation, the misunderstanding about what's going on, you know what I mean? People assume that I've been putting testosterone into my knob and that's the end of it, you know what I mean? And 
taking drugs has never been in question, isn't anything to do with this case. It's, a, it's a, to do with the, uh, what, I was charged with tampering, which was then changed to tampering or attempted tampering. And um, it was about a, a filing failure. I forgot to fill in my whereabouts and I lied about it, which I stood up and said was wrong um, almost immediately. And standby is still not right. Um, but what I did wasn't fraudulent and it wasn't tampering. Tampering is using a fake penis to put clean piss in a pot because yours will fail a test. Or tampering is is letting somebody that looks like you take the test in your place for providing false ID. That's what tampering is and is intended for. And well, yeah, we can get into the details of it. But yeah, it's just a it's a living nightmare. So somewhat okay. If you'd got caught actually doping. What would your ban have been then? Two, two to four years is the general. So it's a four-year ban for actually doping, and most dopers um, get it reduced to two years. I mean, Justin Gatlin, I don't have the exact on his case, but he, he's been called twice and uh, whatever else, but his got reduced to two years. So many dopers get reduced to two years, whether it be for providing information about where they got it or whatever. So most people that get done for doping don't even end up with a full four-year sentence. And even if they do, it's a four-year sentence. So for actually taking the gear you get less of a sentence than you would if you didn't turn up or that blows my mind i i, I can't it blows everyone's mind the public response to this has been kind of unanimous in the press and everyone else without me saying too much it just doesn't make any sense from the from the own appeals uh the appeals decision that they published was damning enough in itself that showed how ridiculous it was and i think a lot of people haven't noted that they haven't published the decision from the original hearing where I was fully acquitted. They haven't published that. They haven't made it public. So it's not very transparent. And so how has it gone how has it gone full circle though? What's happened in the interim? Nothing has happened. That's that's the problem with this. So the case has happened. Uh, I was charged. I denied the charges. You went to a hearing. That was fair enough. That case was completely dismissed. Um, they've appealed me the, the things that have happened in the appeal and how they've applied these rules and ignored uh, precedent from cast cases and everything else is is beyond me. And I don't have the, a big part of the problem with this is I don't have the right to appeal. They're saying that I'm a national level athlete and I'm not being afforded. The, if it was a case of appealing it, I would take it to the court for arbitration of sport and I would have a third opinion on it. Because I think the, the huge problem with this is it's a, it's a 50-50 decision. One panel heard everything, the entire case in its entirety, live, in a, in a court, or, or in a room, which might be a court. Um, and then the appeals panel, there was an appeal filed by U County Doping, and at one point they claimed they had new evidence, and then they didn't, and said in the directions hearing, and put in writing that they didn't have new evidence, and they just argued, basically, that they disagreed with the rule. They believed it was based on an erroneous decision, the anti-doping rule. And then the appeals panel, well, I can go into detail about how they've come to that decision, but the appeals panel have, long story short, come to a decision that it's four years. They didn't, it wasn't a rehearing of the case. It wasn't like a de novo from scratch hearing. The scope of the appeal was, was it or was it not an erroneous decision based on an analysis of the rules? And that was all it was. They didn't hear the case. They didn't, they had access to the files and recordings from the case, but they did not hear the facts and the evidence live at all. So there's only two panels have heard this, so it's a 50-50 decision. When you play rock, paper, scissors, do you play best of two? Uh, best of five. <laughs> it's best, best of three, best of five. You can't have best of an even number. This is a 50-50 decision. One panel has completely dismissed me, um, saying that, well, applying the facts, that every lie told isn't fraud, and um, and that these pools are separate. These are bits that get a little more complicated, but the case 
completely dismissed and that you cannot you can't, how can you be banned for something that has no consequences? They sent me a letter saying that there were no consequences for anything on the domestic testing pool. I have no filing failures and that there can be no consequence and you can only be done for tampering for evading a consequence. So how can one, one panel come to that decision that is completely dismissed and then another panel come to the complete opposite decision by ignoring the cast precedent, ignoring the rules that are there and, and classing these two pools as the same thing. And then, um, they're ignoring that and ignoring that and then coming to the opposite decision. So you've got one, one panel that's heard everything, one panel that hasn't. Even if we say that both panels heard everything exactly the same, that's one for yes and one for no, let alone the fact that everything's dubious about the appeal. Um, it's a 50-50 decision. So how can you destroy someone's life and career and business? I'm a sports therapist and I'm not allowed to treat international athletes because of this since my provisional suspension. So they've destroyed... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Right, so why? Apparently, but I've I've signed. You know, what I mean, when you sign up to it, apparently there are the rules and things like that. But you know, what I mean, I've okay, I understand, and I'm not condoning. I don't think it's right, but I understand if they're not letting you partake in the sport or compete in the sport. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If you're banned, but yeah, that's your day job. There's nothing to do with. I agree. I, I I could almost understand if the if the reason that I was banned was for supplying drugs, trafficking drugs. You don't want someone that's supplying and trafficking drugs working with other athletes. So I can understand yeah. that. But what I've done is a whereabouts failure, and it's nothing to do with influencing athletes doing anything else. And they've destroyed yeah my business and my livelihood and my income from that. And I'm doing everything I can. I've lost my jobs in lockdown. I'm trying to scaffold and build furniture and sell things to like stay afloat. I can't do anything. It's just and I, I've been dealing with this since two thousand. 18. Um, and they have the power to do that is scary. But no, they, people just don't realize I've just landed in this position and nobody realizes that they have this sort of power because nobody really ends up involved in this. You know, if you take drugs, you get a ban. And this is just such an unknown area. And I'm just discovering a lot of bad things for a lot of people. I, I, guess, I guess it's really tough for you when you see bigger names like, for instance, like Christine Horogu, like Olympic gold medalist, she missed three tests. Like no lengthy ban, national hero, never talked about. It seems like, you know, on the surface of things, I've been in the circle, as you know, with Team GB and stuff as well. Like they sort of prop up the bigger names and then make, maybe make an example of, you know, those coming through or even the throwers. What, what do you think to that? Yeah, of course, it's beyond obvious. It's not about throwing shade at anyone, but it is beyond obvious, not just because it's coming out of my mouth. You've said it, I haven't, you know what I mean? That's where the questions come from. I've heard this question countless times. It's all over the press and all over the place. That, um, there's clearly a disparity in how people are treated. You look at Mo Farah and the panorama that just came out. Uh, Andy Brown said the same thing from the Sports Integrity Initiative. He said in his opening gambit in his press piece that Mo Farah has lied in that interview about taking carnitine. He's gone out of the room. He's come back in and said, yeah, sorry, that wasn't true. He hasn't been charged. There hasn't been anything. He hasn't been questioned. And with everything else that's been questioned around Mo, that's their business and whatever else, you know what I mean? But everybody has read the news. No one lives under a rock, you know what I mean? It's just, and, and the Christine thing, it completely comes, well, look at Tyson Fury, Dillian White. Tyson Fury's got enough money to bankrupt UCAD, so suddenly everything disappears and they come to an arrangement. Oh, well, he served two years, so we'll give him two years. And Tyson's parading around like he hasn't been charged. He's like, yeah, it all got dropped. And I'm like, it didn't get dropped. You got two years, but it was backdated, so you carry on. And in boxing, it's apparently okay. Nobody cares that anyone's got a ban. As long as they're not currently banned, that's the end of it. But in any other sport, any other connotation or association with it, you get absolutely slaughtered. And um, and Dillian, everything that's gone on there recently, that's just been dropped completely. Nothing, you could have made a, a statement to go with it. 
nobody's answered any questions. Everyone's just unquiet on it. Let's just all leave it alone. And so many things just don't get asked. It's wild. I guess, I guess it's hard for you though, because Dillian recently moved to Loughborough to do his, all his training there, didn't he? Because um, I know Benji, obviously, you know very well, Benji, number one javelin throw of the UK. He obviously very connected with Dillian. He's moved to Loughborough. Obviously, it's quite hard for you to see one rule for him and another rule for someone else. This is where I, I know Dillian. I'm friends with Dillian and I, I like the guy. You know what I mean? And I just, it's the disparity between who you are and how much money you got in the bank and what lawyers you can afford and who you're connected to and it's beyond clear it's beyond obvious it's just there the facts are there it's out in public these certain cases get taken on and certain cases don't they released in their statements that this had to send a message and and this was about showing force and everything else it's clearly being used as an example and and i'm being completely ignored by british athletics and wada you know i mean i've stood up and said i'm not being afforded the right to appeal here that's a breach of my human rights they're allowed to appeal. I win the case. I was about to say that. So, yeah, so you got, it, it all got cleared and then they appealed, overturned that, but you're not, like I said, you're not got the right to defend yourself. I've not, I'm not allowed the right to defend myself. If I was an, if I was classed as an international athlete, I would be allowed to defend myself. What's the difference? Because they've chosen to put me on the domestic testing call. So apparently if I was in the registered testing call, I would then be classed as an international athlete. But I've been to the Olympics, the World Champs, the Europeans, two Commonwealth Games. I've got two Commonwealth medals. And I've got a record all the way. I don't know. There is no competition I can go to that I haven't been to. I've been to the highest level of the sport. I'm not an Olympic medalist and I'm no big name and I don't profess to be or have any desire to be. But I'm an Olympic athlete. I get these rings tattooed on my chest for a laugh. You know what I mean? And I'm not being defended. Credit to Global Athletes uh, and Independent Athletes Union. They're standing up for my rights and, and trying to help me defend this. Um, but the World Anti-Doping Agency, the president, Vitor Banker, he's come out and tweeted saying, uh, as president of uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, I'm here to upstand for athletes' rights, this and the next thing. But they haven't respond to, responded to our formal complaint. We put in a complaint, uh, and not just me kicking off saying, oh, this was bullshit. We put in a formal complaint with the, the reasons and the declarations as to why the rules have not been applied correctly and how this doesn't apply and how the appeal needs to be given a third opinion. Like I say, you don't do rock, paper, scissors on a best of two. You do it on a best of three. There is clearly a discrepancy in the rules if, if two parties are essentially meant to come to the same decision. If the rules are clear and you've got one highly celebrated Queen's Council, a QC, Robert Englehart, that decided that, and then the other QC, Charles Hollander, they're meant to be coming to the same decision. They're meant to be looking at the rules and applying the rules correctly to the same decision or very close to, you know what I mean? There's going to be little opinions and stuff in there. But when you've got a decision that goes one way and the other way, that clearly shows a discrepancy in the rules. So surely in a matter of fairness and human rights and equality, that has to at least be looked at to decide whether this decision has been made correctly or not. Or if the rule, there's a problem in the rules that need to be changed. And if there are, this needs to be amended. And my rights need to be upheld. And no one's replying to me, so I can't even do anything about it. I, I should have the right to go to CAS. They can take it there for me. Any governing body has the right to take this to the Court for Arbitration of Sport. But obviously that would require rocking the boat and essentially by taking it there, they would be saying that this decision hasn't been made properly. The, and the that's the thing though, isn't it? It's clear to see that well, British athletics is a business model. It's a business, right? Um, and I'd, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on how it's run as a business from your side of things, but it clears to see that they favourable certain names and then make example of others to sort of balance the boat a little bit. Don't know what you think that. Yeah, it's always, this is a fine line and this is where I've got to be careful because obviously people are going to be desperate to hang me for saying the wrong thing and making the wrong accusations. But 
British athletics are, are a business. There's so many different bodies involved in this. There's the National Anti-Doping Panel who rendered the decision because the UK Anti-Doping charged me, but UK Anti-Doping aren't British athletics. British athletics are the governing body. And then there's England athletics, Scottish athletics and everything else. So everyone plays their own part, but isn't British athletics didn't charge me and they aren't responsible for, for the sentence either. But they do have the right to appeal. They were in the middle of uh, going to... I don't believe I have to do something about it. And suddenly all of that's come to a halt and, uh, and they won't respond to me anymore. They have the right and the responsibility to defend an athlete that's being clearly, you know what I mean, picked on, basically. The, the rules are being looked at weirdly, however you want to put that, but I'm not sounding dangerous. But the rules are being, not going to say bent, but the rules are being, oh, what do we, how do you even we, say? We know what you mean. We know what you mean. We get the idea. We get the idea for sure. Judicial creativity is being absolutely stretched to its boundaries here um, to try and get things to apply. And is this, one, why? Why is this happening? You know what I mean? This, someone's pulled the trigger somewhere. Why is it allowed to happen as well? Yeah, how, yeah, one, how is it allowed to happen? Who do I turn to? Like, I, I'm absolutely being just hung out to dry. It's an example. I, I, that just blows my mind that they're not allowing you to continue with your business. Yeah. I should laugh. It's nothing to do with the sport. It's madness. Unless I'm miles off here. To me, that's nothing to do with your, the sport which you've been charged for. Absolutely, yeah. They'll probably argue otherwise and say that I've, I've signed a document that says I adhere to these rules, and if those rules say that you're not allowed to treat people, I guess I've got no like, hand on in that front. But the reality is you can't stop someone doing their income. It's just such a, a bizarre situation where I happen to work in that field and, it apply, and I'm in Loughborough where I treat multiple, multiple, multiple. I used to treat a lot of international athletes. You said that. You say you're in a bizarre situation, but I'm assuming most athletes will also have a day job or a side job, if you want to call it that, that is something to do with sport. Because that's your passion. So you would, yes, uh, some do. I wouldn't say like a massive majority, a lot are lucky enough to train full time or a lot of them are pursuing other things, whether it be a legal career or whatever else. But yeah, a lot would definitely want to, whether at least studying things at university that are sport related, sport science and this and the next thing, yeah. I guess for you, it's like it's pretty hard. You feel just powerless right now. You know your intentions have been clear. You've said a white lie that isn't like you doping. It's not doping. And you feel powerless right now and actually continuing your career and your passion of going to the Olympics and everything else. It must be so hard. Yeah, I mean, I just had a, a hip replacement, you know what I mean? A hip resurfacing. And I thought that was the least of my problems. Um, well, now it's the least of my problems. I thought that was a pretty big problem. I've had two reconstructions. I've come back and learned to walk again from them. After my second reconstruction, I came back and got bronze in Gold Coast at the Commonwealth Games in 2018. After that, my leg fell off and I've, had, I've got a metal hip now. And it's been a groundbreaking, like, <laughs> fell off. surgery where they've cut my femur in half vertically at the top to save the attachments and screw them back in. I've had this surgery to come back and I was well on the way to doing it. And then they've flipped this appeal and it's just wild. And it's, it, How old are you, Mark, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 32, and this is the critical point. I'm done, basically. I can't, I'm can't. i not waiting four years and doing that. They've destroyed my career. But these are the last kind of few years that I've got left, and and this has just destroyed everything. And I, I wouldn't even mind if this was a case of me just, you know what I mean, if I got caught for doing, if, if I was taking drugs, for example, and I got caught for that, I could almost deal with it. You know what I mean? If you've made a mistake, you're like, you know what, I did something like really, really bad, you know what I mean, and I kind of deserve this and blah, blah, blah. But this is... This is so much more than my case, and I haven't done anything wrong with taking drugs. Just obviously, we know that. But case people clipping it in the wrong way, but um, this is scary. 
this people should be really, really concerned by this. This level of abuse of power, and for what they can do this at any time to anyone. It's like, oh well, it's Mark Ryan, whatever. This can happen to anyone at any time. Certain people they will choose not to do it to, depending on how much money they've got and how well connected and how high profile they are. But this can happen to anyone, and, and the massive majority of athletes aren't big name superstars. So if, if they're not hitting the targets and the figures and numbers need to be made up or whatever it is, and I'm not saying that's necessarily the reason for it, I can, nobody can prove that, but it is just madness the way things are going about and how how you just don't have a right. You should have a right. These people are meant to be there to defend you. You can't be doping are there to catch to catch cheats, and, and they absolutely should be. But there have been so many cases where the rules have been so different depending on who you are and where you're from. And it's just scary that, okay, well, who do I turn to? I disagree with this. So somebody somewhere must be able to uphold justice. And it's not a case of me just having an argument and disagreeing. The, the rules have not been applied properly. Like the Murray case is, is the cast precedent that must be followed. They've ignored it. The facts that have been set from the original, from the original hearing, everything that was put into the original decision, any facts that are outside the scope of the appeal cannot be changed. They have to be left because they were decided upon by the original panel and it wasn't a de novo hearing. So they must be changed. The second, the appeals panel have changed those facts. They're like, well, we disagree with that and we're changing it. You can't. Like, that's not how it's set out. And if there's ever any discrepancy in the rules, you, you must apply them how they're intended to be applied. That's how it works. And, they're just, and it's just being ignored. It's saying that the domestic testing pool, I'm on the, the domestic testing pool where there's no one-hour slot and you get a filing failure if you forget your word. You get one, two, and three filing failures. There's no consequence for one filing failure, no consequence for two filing failures no consequence for three filing failures other than you get moved up to a separate pool, the registered testing pool, the national registered testing pool, which Christina Hurubu was on. And if you get on that, you miss a test if you miss your hour slot. If you get two missed tests, again, you're on two missed tests. If you get a third missed test, you can be eligible for one or a two-year ban. So the only pool that you can be sanctioned on is the registered testing pool. In every piece of documentation everywhere, they are separate pools. And they were written as, if they were intended as one six-strike pool, it would be the pool. It would be one six-strike system. But it's the three-strike domestic testing pool filing failure system and the three-missed-test registered testing pool system. Remembering, tampering can only apply if you're evading a ban. So on the domestic testing pool, there are no sanctions. This is my first ever filing failure. And I helped them with a case in data. I provided substantial assistance. I grasped a few people that paid off uh, two doping control officers in the, in the hallway in a World Challenge meeting in the car. So I'm, I'm, I've been so anti-doping my whole career. And they're saying, well, if we look at it as one six-strike pool, then we can say, if you were to miss two more filing failures, and then we put you up onto the registered testing pool, and then you got three missed tests all within 12 months, then you could get a one or a two-year ban. So the direct reason for your lie must be to evade a ban, which even if it was a six-strike pool and everything else, to say that that was the reason is lunacy, and that's how this sticks. I, I, I think it's mind-blowing, to be honest. But it, I, it kind of, for me, in my opinion, this is only my opinion, it just seems that it's a bit of a witch hunt and also they need to make an example of someone to show that they are sort of regulating and giving issues for something. But I think it's, once again, it's just assumption that it's all just... It annoys me. You, you said that, but I don't see how this will benefit... I don't... I, I just can't see how this benefits the sport or benefits... Well, is the sport a better place? Anyway. I saw Natalie, and I'm fine being called out and whatever, you know what I mean? Like, is the sport a better place without me in it? Have I done so bad? All I've tried to do is inspire people. I'm not the biggest, the tallest, the fastest, the smartest. I'm just a kid from a fishing village in the north of Scotland. All I've done is 
be told that I'm shit and be told that I'm not good enough and I'm not talented enough and I'll never make the Olympics and I'll never break the Scottish record. All I've done is go against the grain and tell everyone to fucking eat one and just pushed and pushed and pushed. And I'm not going to be a superstar. I made the Olympic Games with the help of my of people around me and my old coaches and stuff. I've, I've been self-coached since 2014 um, with help from one of my former coaches, Chris Black and various people. I've had plenty of help along the way, but all I wanted from this was to show people that are constantly told that they're not good enough to achieve something or do something, that you can achieve whatever you want if you're just willing to have the grit to tough it out and see it out and you don't have to be the strongest. That's, that's my purpose in the sport, more than winning any medals or doing anything else. And this, like I say, this is just about so much more than this, you know what I mean? I, I don't care if I like, don't come back to the sport from this. This isn't about me not coming back. Something just needs to be changed that they can't bully other people. And getting me out of the sport, I'm hardly the scourge of athletics. And maybe that's just my opinion, but... I feel like with the amount of things going on, I'm one of the last things that needs to be removed from this sport as a as a force, you know what I mean? Just for now, I want to celebrate a little bit more about what you have achieved because you've achieved some amazing things in this sport, like especially with the Commonwealth Games, bronzing. I remember watching that on TV, Senior. I've been following you for years with Benji and Senior. I thought that was amazing in your kilt. still remember <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> Pisters apart. And what was that like, getting that bronze medal? Um... Which one, the, the Glasgow one or the gold? Yeah, Glasgow, Glasgow one, yeah. They were both very different experiences. Glasgow was so special. Glasgow was like redemption for me after the, after all the, the rest of the bad stuff went on with 2012 selection. Um, that nearly finished me, like 2012 nearly wiped me out. Oh, I was not in a good place. So. You, you've explained to me on the site, explain to the listeners and Joe, t- tell us about that 2012 and what happened there. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's not, it made me, that, the, the bottom line of all of this is it made me who I am and it made me resilient enough to see this out and fight whatever else. I won't be bullied by anyone um, for standing up for myself and standing up for other athletes' rights and stuff. But yeah, 2012, me and another guy, Alex Smith, were going for, uh, both going for it. It was when there was A and B standards. It was a little more complicated, but um, I'd beaten him 7-1 head-to-head. All my averages were above this and the next thing. And he beat me at, um, at British Champs, which is important. But we both threw a B standard at British Champs. Or if you weren't going on an A standard, the policy clearly said on a B standard, what would be taken into account was head-to-head performance and average top three, average top five, or whatever it was. Um, and we based our whole season around that. We, we were like, none of us are going to get the A standard. It was like 78, 79 meters, I think it was. Um, no, we were both throwing like 74, 75. So we were not, weren't going to get it. So it had to be about, I just followed him around. You know what I mean? Every company went to him, like, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. I need to take him on head to head, get the numbers up on him. Because he was on funding and I wasn't. I knew any 50-50 decision wasn't going to go my way. His dad was number two, was number two all time in, uh, in the all-time rankings list, connected to British athletics, everything else. And um, So that, that, that's an impact though, isn't it? Family name. In, in connected with it. You, you want to protect your son, you want your son to go to the Olympics, I get that. But um, British Athletics had um, people running around and legal teams running around going through the documents saying that he threw 74 twice. I threw it once at the British Champs, he threw it twice at the British Champs, and they ended up getting two separate 74 meter results to count as two individual results from the same competition. Therefore, he had two B standards, not one. So then it counted, and it was just anything a way to dress running around finding a way to make sure that I don't go to the Olympics and he does um, and me and Alex are fine you know what I mean I just wish it was about we're friends now and I'm friends with the family and everything else and, and we put it to bed you know what I mean we all had a bit of grief for years and stuff but we're sound and um, just 
I don't even I don't even regret that. You know what I mean? It would have been great to make a home Olympics, but like I say, it made me who I am now. I had a big choice to make after that. That nearly. Uh, so you, you went from 2012 into Glasgow and you got the bronze, but obviously is that the first like big thing that you've you've had to your name there? And how have that how that feel? Yeah, of course. The first chance I made was Delhi in 2010, uh, games. I came in seventh, and then not making London, which was my dream. You know, I mean, that was the reason I was doing the sport. It was a home Olympics. That was everything. And I qualified. I'd done what I needed to do. It wasn't I fell short. I did everything that was required of me in politics going away which I hadn't experienced before um, at that level. So then redemption for me was I obviously being Scottish, I spent two years living in Glasgow and from the Highlands. So most athletes don't get a chance to have a home championships in any way, shape or form because their country doesn't have the infrastructure to hold it or just shit luck that it doesn't happen to be in your country. Even if you do have it, it happens before or after your career is over. You know what I mean? Someone starts the sport straight after London 2012, the chances of having a London Olympics in their career is zero. You know what I mean? So the, the chances of having that were so slim. So for me, Glasgow was like a little redemption moment and it, it meant everything to me. And I know the Commonwealth Games isn't the same, held in the same regard as the Olympics and, and rightly so, whatever, but it's a very special championships. It's the only championships we get to represent Scotland as a whole nation. Because um, obviously everything else is Great Britain for us, Europeans, Worlds and Olympics. Um, so for me, walking out in front of a home crowd and essentially for me, walking into Glasgow was like walking into London. And I can't say that because I wasn't at London, but that was my London. And and looking back, I'm glad. I'm, I'm more proud of doing what I did in Glasgow and getting a bronze out. I've never, Glasgow bulletproofed me for my career. I've never, I, I was sick, came out of my room to go to the bus, spewed all over the pavement. Right, and I'm not normally, I'm, I get nervous. I'm not, not scared of anything. I'm not one of them, oh, yeah, I'm not scared enough for me. I'm like, I get nervous. I'm a human being, you know what I mean? But I'm normally quite good at dealing with it. And and that I've never experienced anything like that. I'm, I'm like shaking and not okay. And I've been sick outside my room before I've even gone to the bus. And I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble here. Qualifying. And then I just remember walking out into the stadium, walking out in a kilt, walking out into the stadium and having everyone respond to you directly. Like the noise that hit you when you're in that stadium, they I don't know if you remember, they lifted the stadium in Glasgow, taken out like six real seats or something. So the track stopped and it was row one. Like the people were there. It wasn't a, a gap, you know what I mean, for Preston. How many people were there? Smaller stadium. I think it was 40,000, but it, it felt like 100,000. Yeah, I know not a lot of people. I know there's bigger stadiums, you know what I mean, 50, 80,000, but it felt like, speak to, not just me because I'm from there, speak to any athlete that was at Glasgow, I'll tell you it was buzzing. It was absolutely mental. Glasgow is one of the best cities I've ever lived in. And since then, it's grown and grown. The buzz around the city, the buzz in town, the buzz in the stadium was good. But the noise was insane, wasn't it? It hit you. I, could, I always struggle to explain this to someone. I walked out, and when I first walked in, the, the crowd don't even know. You know what I mean? A lot of them are huge, huge athletics fans. A lot of them are, to be fair, but they don't know who's walking in the circle. And the announcer's like, oh, I'm for Scotland. Marjorie's going in to do a warm-up throw. And the scream, like, that you could almost see this like sound coming to you and it hit you it literally hit you in the chest you know what I mean you walked in and like, oh my god shut up just stop <laughs> making no don't look at me just let me warm up and do my thing and like yeah if I'm in a good position later then start cheering I just did not want noise and then we got into the competition or well, I remember in qualifying I couldn't I don't. I do remember the throw. I remember first round of qualification. Obviously, if you get over the oval queue, you automatically go into the final. And I couldn't speak. I was shaking. I was a mess. 
And um, just for the pressure of the crowd and everything else, I'm like, it should, it should be easy to get through qualifying for me. Everyone knows where they're ranked and what they're capable of. I should be able to drop this for a laugh and go off um, and get ready for the final. But you don't want to burn all your adrenaline in qualifying. And it's so easy to mess up an event in what should be an easy throw. It's the, the hardest thing you can possibly do in sport is get through a qualifying round or in our sport, you know what I mean? It's get through a qualifying round as a technical event where it should be so easy. It's almost worse for people that are higher ranked than it is for people that some people are going to need to throw a lifetime best and make it to the final and they know that so it's a bit more all or nothing for them when you know you should just cruise through it the pressure is disgusting and in front of the home crowd and and scotland is one of those countries you know i mean there is such national pride to go there and think about not making it through when you're expected to medal we all knew what the rankings were you know what i mean there was a few few of us that were in the tussle for a medal shot i definitely should have been one of them as much as I had no right to get one, I was definitely in that conversation. And um, yeah, you start thinking about things you shouldn't be. What if I mess this up? What if I put three in the cage? What if I just put the first one in the cage? And you're thinking about how you'll react to messing up the first one and then you'll mess up the second one. And I'm like, what is going on? This is like everything that I've taught myself not to think about in these situations. And you just go, full moron. And your head's just going, I'm like, oh my God. And um, yeah, I, I remember swinging. And I remember the noise building up so much because the announcer had called it on me, you know what I mean? And I was just like, oh my God, I was swinging the hammer and, and the noise was too loud. I've never, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm going to have to stop this and put my hands to my ears because it's that loud. And I remember going to enter and going, oh my God, I'm going to have to stop. And then, and I went to stop. I think in my head, I went to stop and start again. But then I'd already entered and I was in like the middle. I don't really remember the, I remember doing the first two turns and thinking, oh my God, you just, you just know that doing you know in your routines, you know when you're into sync. You know, I'm throwing like the child that's never thrown before, and I'm here to do a job, and that's so far. And then I remember just not that the noise got so loud as I was about to let go. I don't remember turns three and four, other than I remember letting go and thinking, oh my God, I've just thrown 50 meters in 40,000 people. And then I hear everyone going mental. I couldn't even see where it was going. I was looking at it, and I just couldn't tell where it was going. I just felt it and thought it wasn't going anywhere. And then I look up on the big screen and it's landed over the automatic queue line and I was like, <laughs> absolutely lost my mind. And that bulletproofed me forever. Like doing that, went out the next day, everyone, a few people struggled in qualifying. It was a nightmare. Went out in the final, walked out in my kill. Much more comfortable. Wasn't even a great competition. I got third in like the, I got bronze in like the third round, I think, and the positions just never changed. So it wasn't anything special other than I managed to execute what I needed to execute. But doing that in front of a home crowd was just the, the, the maddest thing that bulletproofed me forever. I went to World Champs Olympics, everything, and not phased. Do, do you think then that qualifying round at the Commonwealth sort of pulled you into the finals with that? It calmed you down, it put you in your place, you knew what it was all about now. You just had that sort of trial run almost that sort of set you up for the finals and then Worlds and Olympics going on from there. Absolutely. I remember when I made the World Champs, I uh, broke the Scottish record the year after that in 2015 um, at Loughborough International, then, which was a qualifying for uh, Beijing World Championships. Then I threw another qualifier um, and went to Beijing, first World Championships, big deal. I was in good shape and, uh, and, I, and I threw pretty well for what it was. Um, I think I threw 73, 82 or something. And uh, I think I came 14th. I was like, 40 centimetres off making the final, but when I walked out, I remember, you know what I mean, it's the Bird's Nest Stadium, it's a big deal, all the Olympic stuff, and it just wasn't phased. Other championships, I put too much emphasis on this, is everything. I mean, I mean my country's vest, and I just got too emotional and too fired up, and I'd 
blown it all in warm-up and everything. And, and Beijing was good, and I executed pretty well. You know what I mean? You, you can't just go to a champs in a, in a technical event and jump and throw a PB. It just doesn't happen. So it was a good performance for where I was at. For my first World Championships, it was a good performance. And this is the reality of sport. It's not people think if you don't get a medal or if you're not more far or if you're not like challenging. People get disappointed if you come fourth. You know what I mean? And it's... 14th in the world is good at that part of my career. I would like to have done better then and I would like to have improved moving forward but I think it was a good position and it reinforced that I was in a good place. I could compete under pressure and I was confident in doing that from Glasgow. Again, went to the Olympics. I felt good apart from my hip exploded then. You know I mean? Five days before qualifying my part of my hip ruptured. The, the terrorist ligament inside, we think it was that that went. I'd had loads of problems from 2015 and we'd just been uh, looking after it until until the Olympics and I got there in a lot of pain but I could deal with it but then five days before something I think that it was the ligament that had come off completely the labrum had detached I had no cartilage left but that ligament had come off and it was like I'd been shot in the leg I think it's kids probably know it the hammer the javelin the throwing sports is pun- the punishing supports aren't they the punishing you know you know from a biomechanic standpoint you're putting a lot of you know jewels of energy into those joints right how heavy is the hammer 7.26 kilos, which is 16 pounds in old money. So, yeah, men's shot and hammer are 16 pounds or 7.26 kilos. So, yeah, it's the forces that you're dealing with when you get down to the science of hammer's obviously on a longer lever, shot's obviously heavier and I guess hard on the wrist and the next thing. But hammer, because it's on the lever, you're looking at 300 plus kilos of force when, you, when you're throwing. I think the world record was worked out at about 370 kilos of pull, whether that was against Newtons or whatever it was, but I can't remember the exact thing. But basically, it is wild the amount of force. Yeah, we're not designed to swing that around, no way, really. <laughs> I've, got two, I've, got, I've got disc bulges in my back, uh, herniated disc, L5-S1, uh, two bulges, L3-4-4-5. I've had ruptured patellas and horn everything, uh, stress fractures in my back, pause fracture, bulge disc in my neck, uh, broke a disc in my jaw when the wire snapped and I bounced my head off the floor. Like, yeah, you get some bad stuff from stupid things and just from lifting and training and, and both Achilles tendonitis and both knees tendonitis. Like, everything's just... Part of was poor. I didn't... I wasn't educated enough in... This was before I was a therapist and knew anything about my body sort of thing. So didn't stretch properly, didn't train properly, fell into the stereotype of, oh, I don't want to stretch too much because I'll lose, I'll lose my power and stuff like that. And just, I mean... It's amazing how some sports are in the forefront of sports science and recovery and protection, and some sports are just archaic in their approach to training and how getting things done, you know what I mean, like, and protecting your joints. I imagine a lot of boxers are still just banging out road miles and just crunching their knees up on concrete and stuff, and there's other ways to, to get it up, you know what I mean? And I get that's how it was done, and it worked, and it produced some amazing people, but there are smarter, more efficient ways to train now. Yeah, we spoke about, we had a guest on the other day who's a um, founder of a company called Boxing Science. Yeah, um, and um, we had very interesting chats about this sort of thing on how much the sports come on. And I guess not boxing. I know there's some areas of boxing that are absolutely advancing that and whatever. But yeah, traditionally, from here, it's kind of more old school thing. I know there's some amazing people doing some amazing stuff to advance that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, ten years ago, that like I said, that's all it were. Like I said, you went out, you did your old work, you hit you hit the pavement, and then you got in the gym, you did the bags and the sparring, and yeah, it's. Yeah. You've met some pretty inspiring athletes and leaders, Bolt, Farah, all, all the guys. Is there anyone that springs to mind that's really inspired you and took a, a big impact on you? You know how to answer something like this. And, it, and it's always hard. And I find it sad. I find it a sad question that 
there's a lot of people that have been in the sport and then they're not giving back and they're not willing to give back. And I, and I know it's hard sometimes when there's no coaching jobs and opportunities. And, and there's so many people that have been in, in charge of governing bodies and stuff and people that I've known well. But people, the saddest thing for me is people are just not willing to stand their ground and they're not willing to stand up for what's right. There are too many people that as an elite athlete are scared to confront the federations and I don't want to fight. I don't want to fall out with British athletics and water and anyone. I just want justice because what's happened to me is not right. You know what I mean? And I feel sad that I don't have anyone to turn to. I wish I trusted. I did trust the federations and, and the authorities to do the right thing. And, and nobody, I can't speak for everyone, but from everyone I've spoken to, there's a massive, 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 I would almost say everybody in sport. Nobody likes British athletics or many of these governing bodies and they don't, they don't instill confidence. They don't instill pride. And, and they're not trustworthy. And their actions, again and again and again and again, reinforce that. And if they showed actions that meant we could believe in them, I, I want to believe in our system. I want to believe in everyone's system. And we can. And actions speak louder than words. And I, I find it sad. I don't have anyone really to admire in the sport, whether it be an athlete or a coach. I've got a lot of time for Tony Minicello, now that we're thinking about it. He speaks his mind. He stand up, stands up for what's right. He's very marmite. He's opinionated. As am I, and that's fine. Not everyone has to like him or me or whatever, but standing up for your group or your athletes and for what you believe in and when things aren't being done right is admirable. So I've got more time for that than I've got for anything else. I think Christian Taylor's on the verge of doing something great. He's been, he started this movement. We've got Global Athlete doing one thing, and I think it's We Are The Sport Christian's movement. And He's a big voice, you know, I mean, Olympic world champion, however many times it all is, I should know all that. But, and he's a gentleman. I know the guy from when he trained at Loughborough. He's, he's a gentleman of the sport. He genuinely cares about the sport and its athletes. He's trying to do something, but again, actions speak louder than words. And, he, and he's doing something and he's starting a movement, but he needs to grit his teeth and bite the bullet and fight what needs fighting. And it's, you can't, there's always going to be politics and people are always going to pick their battles. But if you want to make change in sport and you want people to stand together and we need a united voice to make positive change and people need to stand up for that. Christian's very close to doing it, but being very close and, and stepping through the door are very different things. And I do believe he has the strength to do it. This isn't a criticism of him. He's, he's a great, great man. That's why I've brought his name into it. But um, yeah, Chell's been a, a great influence for how to, to stand fast in sport. And I think more people should take heed of that. And I am just saddened that we're not in a position that we can trust everything that's going on. It's, it really is sad. It's, it's depressing. I give my life to this sport because I love it. I don't do it for the money. I've made nothing. I've lost thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds traveling around the world, not being covered by competitions this, that, and the next thing. And I don't care. I've got friends all around the world that I can go and see at the drop of a hat. I've, I've made lifetime friends. I've got memories. I've got everything else. So it's not about money, but it's sad that you give everything to something like this. And, and this is where I'm at. So what's next? I don't know. This is the problem. I'm just powerless. If I could have closure on this, if, if this categorically came out, you know what I mean? If I, if I was in the wrong here and, and nothing had been done badly and it was all done and you just got to accept it, then, then you can do that. But no, nothing can happen. There can't be any closure for anyone until this is dealt with. And, and they're not responding for, for a reason. Um, and so the only thing that happens here is if I, if I go quiet, if I just leave this fight, then it, then it stops. And it's, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why athletes aren't more concerned about this, that if they just decide, just ignore him, he's not there. But that's an acceptable way for a national, not even a national, an international governing body, all of them, to respond. 
Like, I, I don't understand how that's acceptable. And who, who, and I don't understand who they're accountable to because at some point you're at the top of the tree and that's it. And if that's the precedent they're setting, that they can just do what they want when they want, they'll, people talk about justice in these things. And justice is, justice fits a narrative. It's always about fitting a narrative. If justice is in their interest, then it will happen and they'll shout about bringing justice. When they choose to just completely ignore something, we don't talk about, well, I talk about the injustice and some people do and some people are great advocates for fighting for equality and justice and everything else but taking and choosing when you stand up for justice does not oh that's in charge of our sport every sport and it's it's scary that people just don't even know what's going on in the facts i didn't you know i mean it's obviously i've been thrust into this position which has opened my eyes massively uh, and i wish i did know more before but i was actively working on an athletes union before to try and give athletes voice more power and everything else so i'm not is this the commission thing was this the commission thing that you're involved in um you know this was before we were looking at uh, yeah like an independent athletes, uh, like commission union together to uh, do something but it's just uh, it's not yeah what advice would you give to an 18 year old Mark Dry one of the saddest things about all this is I get asked whether it be an 18 year old me or a youngster coming into the sport the saddest thing and one of the saddest realities I think on the me as me now would tell myself to just buckle up be ready for a fight and everything bad that's going to happen is going to help you grow and become stronger which I do firmly believe in but would I want my son or daughter or any youngster in my sport, whether I'm related to them or not, should someone else have to go down this path? Should there be such equality with Hammer not being in the Diamond League and anything else? You, you should choose a sport because you love it, because it makes you feel good, because it makes you want to get up in the morning and do something and achieve something. If it gives you drive and it gives you passion. And I feel like telling people that you should not be a Hammer thrower. And that's one of the saddest things I ever have to say. Why would you go into a sport where you get constantly ignored, constantly pushed to the shadows, you're not in the diamond league, you can't earn a living from this, and it shouldn't, you shouldn't get into the sport about making money or for making a living, but if you're going to push to that level, it just seems mad, and it's not just us, I'm sure there's loads of kayakers and all kinds of obscure, I'm sure they won't mind that, we're obscure too, sports that don't get the funding and the exposure for, the, they put in no less hours than any overpaid footballer or anything else you know what I mean they put in no less hours of grueling hard work to be just spat on for everything and I understand there's always going to be imbalance and everything else but I, I would t- I don't want to say I would tell me not to get into this sport because there's no reward or there's nothing but pain and, and it's not true because I've had some good stories and everything else but a lot of people can go down my path and work as hard and, and, and not be as lucky as I was to achieve what I achieved. And, and it can be a, a miserable experience. But I've 50 50 there. I've had some horrible stuff, but I've, I've had some amazing stuff. If you get into this and you only experience the bad, and like the Olympics, you know what I mean? I made it. So many people are deserving of going to the Olympics. And if one, once every four years, they've made the worlds, they made the Commonwealth, they might have meddled with the worlds. But all it takes is one injury, two twice in eight years at the wrong time, and you miss two Olympic Games, and your whole dream of being an Olympian is finished. You can't be like, oh, well, can I do it next year or whatever else? And you can stay for the rest of your life. Well, I would have made the Olympics if my, my Achilles didn't play up or whatever. But bottom line is, if you didn't go, you didn't go. And that will eat you forever. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know what I mean? But it will eat away at you inside forever. Like, it's hard. Where can the listeners go and find you, Mark? Where can they find you on social media and everywhere else? Everything's just Mark Dry, at Mark Dry for everything. You're doing a bit of carpentry right now. I've seen on Instagram stories. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It's class. Yeah. Doing some kitchens. 
Yeah, DIYs, obviously lockdowns, like I can't treat anyone. Uh, I work in events as well uh, with graft events building. We do a lot of bar building and gin festivals and other festivals and stuff like that. And obviously with social, well, there will be no public events for a long time, certainly nothing. So uh, all of their work's dried up. So I've, I've, I can't work for them. I'm obviously self-employed doing that as well. So um, yeah, it's been operation, sort the house out along with everyone else. We've done the garden, we've done the kitchen, we've done everything else. And yeah, sold a few tables and chairs and bits and bobs, making some bespoke stuff to order. So yeah, just trying to stay afloat. Really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. I know it's not easy for you with everything that's going on right now and Joe and I are right behind you and I'm sure everyone else listening can really understand your situation. So uh, big respect to you, mate. I know what you're going through and uh, thanks for your time. No, I really appreciate uh, the support. I know it's just frustrating explaining all this because I know a lot of it's really boring and you can, I can, you know, I mean, I can sit and go through the technicals on this forever, but it gets boring to people and everything else and people just want to know bits and bobs, but... Yeah, I just thank you for taking the time for... uh... Thank you. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Nice one. Guys, we'll see you in the next one. Cheers.